This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. And then we will open in prayer. But first, before we get in fellowship, we ought to make a little announcement. Uh, Al Dowdy's moving this weekend and needs a little help. Uh, not in other things, but just in moving. And uh, <laughs> you can talk to Al, I think, Friday and Saturday, right, Al? So uh, Friday and Saturday, he needs a little assistance in the move. So you can check with him to find out some information uh, regarding that. Okay, let's bow our heads together and open in prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for your never-ending grace, grace that has preceded us and grace that envelops us and grace that will follow us throughout our lives and always sustain us no matter what the situation or difficulty Grace that has provided a miraculous, phenomenal, supernatural plan of salvation that, and, a, and a plan of our spiritual life that covers every contingency and every need. Now, Father, as we devote ourselves to a study of your word this evening, we pray that you'd help us to concentrate, to focus our thinking, to put aside the cares of the day and the distractions that we might let your word wash our souls and purify us as we advance towards spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James 5. James chapter 5, and we'll go back to verse 7 for a brief review since it's been two weeks. James chapter 5. We are now in the concluding portion of this epistle where James returns to the theme of patience and endurance. First verse, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Then there's an illustration. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. And now if you go on and read the eighth verse, it says, you too be patient. Three times we have the Greek word, makrothemia, which indicates that the major theme must have something to do with patience. The command is a um, makrothemia. The command is an aorist, active imperative. And we have seen in our study of James that he has a tendency stylistically to come in and give the main command as an aorist imperative and then follow it up in detail with present imperatives. Aorist imperatives as a whole tend to emphasize urgency. They tend to uh, express priority. And he is calling this congregation to um, really what we would call repentance. That is a change of mind. They're in reversionism. They have been, uh, apparently one problem that they have is impatience the unwillingness or lack of ability to uh, endure, to hang in there during times of testing. 
and they have faced numerous trials, numerous categories of adversity, and rather than hanging in there by uh, keeping the focus on doctrine and learning doctrine, they have uh, tried to solve the problems in a number of ways, and it seems like one of them had to do with money because continuously uh, James has to come back to the theme of, of money and material things and that money doesn't make you happy, money doesn't solve problems. In fact, money can just create a whole new realm of problems. Now, a lot of people think that uh, they just want to face those problems and have that opportunity. But nevertheless, it doesn't make you happy, and it's not the basis for happiness. The basis for happiness is the Word of God and doctrine in your soul, and only with doctrine in your soul do you have the capacity to handle financial problems blessing and reward. If you don't have doctrine in your soul, then financial blessing will just destroy you and you will use that to um, fulfill the lusts of your sin nature and the end result will be catastrophic and miserable. So James says in the beginning, the command to be patient and he repeats it in verse 8. And both verses are, are similar. The main command is to be patient until the coming of the Lord And then he comes back in verse 8 to the same theme, be patient, strengthen your hearts, that is the thinking part of the soul, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now last time when we looked at this, we saw that there's a couple of technical words here that are very important uh, in terms of the coming of the Lord, one of which is the term coming, which is the Greek word parousia. Looks like this in the Greek. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A and it means coming. Now there are times that there are folks who have tried to make this a technical term for either the second coming of Christ or the rapture. At the second coming, Christ comes to the earth in uh, to save the earth from self-destruction and at the rapture he just comes in the clouds to take the church to himself. At the rapture he comes for the saints. At the second coming he comes with the saints. There is a distinction between the two. But this is basically, we saw last time, a general term that is used for both the second coming and uh, the rapture. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15:23, we saw the statement that st- statement, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after those who are Christ at his coming, that would refer to the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 2:19, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You referring to the believers in Thessalonica in the presence of our Lord Jesus would refer to the rapture. In contrast, you have passages like 1 Thessalonians 3.13, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The with all his saints indicates that that is the second coming, not the rapture. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with, his, with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that second advent. Now, all those terms for coming are the same Greek word, parousia. So we see that parousia is a general term, and you have to discern from the context 
whether or not the author is speaking about the uh, first uh, uh, coming about the rapture or whether he is discussing the second coming of Christ. Now, the illustration we looked at last time is merely an illustration from agriculture and meteorology. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, and the point of the analogy is waiting, because the farmer understands the process. He understands the nature of germination, the, how the process takes a while, that from the time you plant the seed, you have to water it, you have to make sure there's a correct fertilizer, all of those things, the correct amount of sunshine, eventually the seed germinates and sprouts, puts forth the shoot, it grows, develops the, the main stem of the plant, and eventually, 60, 90, 100 days, or sometimes longer out, it will produce fruit. So the farmer understands the process so he can be patient, and the analogy for the believer is because you understand the process of God's plan in history, you can therefore have patience not only in regard to the coming of the Lord, but also in what the Lord is doing in our own lives. Because we do not expect immediate results. We are not going to immediately surge into spiritual adulthood and spiritual maturity. We're not going to immediately experience some sort of ecstatic happiness and joy that catapults us into some higher victorious plane of Christian living. It is a long, slow process. It is dependent upon the daily study and intake of the Word of God that is the nourishment of our soul. Just think how long it took for us to grow physically. We had to eat the right foods. We had to have the right kind of diet. We had to exercise. All of these things played a role, and day by day over a period of 15, 20 years, we gradually grew physically to physical maturity. It takes time. Same thing is true in the spiritual life, and we have to be patient and wait on it. One thing that we do not have in modern American evangelical Christianity is a good theology of time and patience in the spiritual life. We live in a society that is based on instant gratification. If you want food, you just pop something in the microwave, hit the button, and two minutes later you have uh, dinner. It may taste like cardboard, but you have dinner. <laughs> then you can um, go down to one of the uh, fast food joints and drive, go through the drive-thru and you have uh, a, another kind of dinner that's very quick. You can get on the internet, you can order things and have it shipped overnight, and it's amazing how quickly things can come. This last week I had problems with my hard drive on my desktop computer, and before I left for Los Angeles, I had talked with the tech, and he said, oh, we'll have one in by Monday. That was the Monday after I left. And so when I got back this last Monday and I called him to ask if it was ready, he said, oh, no, we haven't been able to come up with a, with a hard drive. We have a 20 meg hard drive, which is, or 20 gig hard drive, which is twice the size I wanted and about uh, $100, $150 more than I wanted to spend. I got on the phone with one of the uh, uh, supply houses at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Monday, 9 o'clock the next morning, it was at my front door, and I took it down there, and I don't know why they couldn't get it that fast. See, we live in an age of instant gratification, but some people don't know how to do it very fast. <laughs> well, we want everything right now. We want uh, quick things. We, want, we live in an age when people want seminary education to be quick. 
so we have seminaries that are catering to the instant gratification mentality and they've introduced uh, masters of biblical studies programs that involve only two years of work but you don't take Greek, you don't take Hebrew maybe if you pick something up as an elective you might get one year of Greek but uh, it's all designed for instant gratification quick fix solutions but the Bible says no things in the spiritual life are based upon quality and quality takes time and this was apparently a problem even in the ancient world, and there was impatience at the congregation that James was addressing. So he tells them to be patient, just like the farmer who waits for the early and the late rains. Now, the early rains are the rains that come at the end of the dry season in October in Israel. And those rains get soaked up into the soil, and they begin to prepare the ground for a light soaking during the winter time, and then the, the there's a planting uh, of the of the uh, various crops in late fall, and they germinate and they grow over the winter time. And there's a little bit of rain during that time, and then there's a heavy rainy season in the spring, and that is the latter rains. And then following that, you have harvest in May or early June, and then comes the summer, which is the dry season. So early and late rain simply refers to the meteorological factors in Israel. It is not talking about the fact that there was an early outpouring of the Holy Spirit that produced miraculous gifts at the beginning of the church age and that there would be a second outpouring called the latter rain at the end of the church age. This is a heresy that developed uh, out of the charismatic movement and the great healing revivals at the end of the 1940s that brought into prominence people like Oral Roberts and a number of other great healing, so-called healing evangelists, and is really at the root of a lot of the health and wealth gospel and some of the other charismatic heresies today. But what people don't understand is that this latter rain concept, that there is a early outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the church age and a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit, has been present in the thought of the Pentecostal movement since its inception, even... Um, uh, uh, Charles pa- uh, Parham, who was one of the founders of the Pentecostal movement, believed in this early rain and latter rain mentality and that with this outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the end of the church age, there would then be a great revival that would bring in or usher in the final days. Now, the problem with that is, 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 is the problems are many. But the, the, one of the greater problems is that the Scripture just flat doesn't teach that. It teaches that in the last days there's going to be great apostasy preceding the rapture and the coming of the Antichrist. But secondly, and the big factor that we're just focusing on this evening, is the fact that that would in, entail prophecy being fulfilled before the rapture. And what we're going to see in the doctrine of the imminency of the rapture, which is in this passage, is that nothing need occur prior to the rapture. There are no signs, there's no prophecies, there's no event or activity in human history taking place prior to the rapture. It can happen at any moment in history. It was true in the apostolic age. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, all initially expected Jesus to come back in their lifetime. It wasn't until they became uh, or they received greater revelation later on in life and they came close to the end of their life 
that they realized they were not going to be in the rapture generation. But they expected the coming of the Lord at any moment. And this doctrine of the imminency of, of the rapture, the imminency of the coming of our Lord, is crucial to understanding the timing of the rapture. So let's move on now from verse 7, which introduces the concept of waiting. And underlying this is a hint of motivation that because the Lord is coming, we need to wait in a proper manner. And this has been the thrust of the understanding of the doctrine of imminency throughout the New Testament is that this is a great source of of encouragement and challenge to the believer to be ready because at any moment the Lord can come back. And if the Lord returns for the church at the rapture in the next five minutes, then that means in six minutes we're going to be standing at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. So if the return of the Lord is imminent, so is our evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. And that should challenge us to be ready to be living in fellowship, to be living, uh, producing divine good, advancing in our spiritual life at any moment so that we are ready for the evaluation judgment of our Lord. Now, verse 8 reads, You too, be patient. Again, we have a repetition of the aorist imperative of makrothemia. And then we have the word, Strengthen your hearts. Uh, again, an aorist imperative from uh, sterizo, which means to uh, establish, to strengthen, to make strong your heart, cardia, the innermost thinking part of your soul. And the way you do that is through taking in the Word of God. It is the Word of God, it is Bible doctrine that alone that strengthens or edifies our soul. And it does that through the development of the soul fortress. That's the concept that as we abide in Christ, John 15, walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, then the result of that is that our soul is strengthened. God becomes our tower, our fortress. He is our shield, our bulwark, so that we can withstand the onslaughts of adversity and we can go forward in the spiritual life. And the motivation for developing patience is eschatological. Eschatology is a 50-cent word from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last or final, and ology, meaning the study of the science of, and it's the study of the last days, and it's a technical term for prophecy. And the concept is that what motivates the believer today, what moves us to obedience, is because we know we have a confident expectation that there is accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. Another term we use for this is our personal sense of an eternal destiny. We know what our eternal destiny is. At the second, at the rapture, we're going to be face to face with the Lord and we are going to then stand before Him at an evaluation judgment called the Bema seat of Christ and described in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 18. So we are exhorted, commanded, mandated to be patient because, and the word that we have here in the Greek is the causal hati, which indicates the reason or basis for the command. And the basis for the command is the immediacy of the Lord's coming. Because of its immediacy and the use of the word here, and gizo, which is the key word for understanding imminency, we're going to stop and go through a point-by-point study of the doctrine of imminency.
Let's begin with defining our terms. There's a number of terms we need to look at when we get into this study to make sure everybody understands what we're talking about. Prophecy has its own set of technical terminology. And sometimes when you get into the pre's and the posts and the mids, whether it's millennialism or tribulationism, some people want to throw up their hands and just say, I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. But we're not going to take that escape hatch and avoid responsibility for understanding the Word of God, so we'll get into the text and see exactly what it says. First of all, in terms of definition, the word imminent means at hand, impending, about to occur, and ready to take place. Just in terms of a basic definition means at hand, impending, about to incur or uh, occur, or ready to take place. It is a technical term in the Scriptures and in theology to, which refers to the at any moment or soon coming of the Lord at the rapture of the church. The at any moment or the soon coming of the Lord at the rapture of the church. It doesn't mean immediate It means something that is impending, something that is overhanging, something that that we can expect, but we just don't know when it's going to take place. The timing of the rapture has not been revealed in, in the Scriptures. Now, a full definition is up on the overhead. It is the impending return of Jesus Christ in the air for all living and dead church-age believers. According to 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. The impending return, Jesus Christ in the air, for all living and dead church-age believers. It does not include Old Testament saints. It only includes church-age believers. Since no biblical prophecies are to be fulfilled before the resurrection of the church occurs, This event has been expected since the time of the apostles. The day or the hour of that event is unknown to any human being and not revealed in the Scripture, but is to be eagerly anticipated. Scripture says, Even so, Lord, come quickly. We are to anticipate and look forward to this. In fact, there is a blessing in the Scriptures. Blessed are those who anticipate the coming of the Lord. So we are to look forward to that. Now, in understanding this and to come to grips with everything related to imminency, we need to understand some secondary definitions for other technical terms. Just those of you who were here last summer for the Prophecy Conference, this is just good review. First of all, the term rapture refers to the resurrection, the resurrection of all dead church age believers, the resurrection of all dead church-age believers, and the removal and translation of all living believers. By translation, I mean that we immediately, instantaneously, will receive a resurrection body. We will not go, those of us who are in the rapture generation will not go through physical death. Our mortal bodies will be instantly, in the twinkling of an eye, be transformed from mortality to immortality, and we will be instantly in the presence of the Lord. 
Now, there's always a lot of speculation as to just exactly what's going to happen when that transpires. If there are a large number of believers on the earth, I just always wonder what will happen when they're driving down the freeway, what's going to take place to the aircraft when the pilot of the aircraft is a believer and instantly disappears from the aircraft. A number of other scenarios will be interesting. What's going to happen to on the uh, operating table when they're undergoing surgery and the believer instantly disappears and the doctors and the nurses are standing around wondering what happened to the patient. There's a lot of humor that can go into the understanding of the rapture and what will take place. It's always a little, I think, fun to talk about. I always, you know, Jesus disappeared from the grave bodily. When they went back in and they, and they looked at the grave, there was nothing there. Everything disappeared because God took what was old and made it new again. Every single part, every aspect of that old body was reformed, reshaped into a new body. It's not that he was given a new body and the old one was in the grave. He rose bodily from the dead. That is our model. Now, I always facetiously think, well, what's going to happen with all the transplants? I mean, if I die and, and I give my eyes and corneas to transplant, my liver to transplant, my heart goes out to transplant, does that mean that when the Lord returns at the rapture that those organs are removed from their new owners? Now, that will keep you up tonight, give you something to think about <clears throat> when you have a little insomnia. So, you could just, just a little added application there. Yeah, there were believers, it wouldn't matter. wouldn't matter. And then there's always people I hear about who, who have rapture wills. Rapture wills. So, they'll, they'll, that they have for somebody they know, give it to somebody they know that's not a believer. If I disappear, open this. You'll go over to the house, feed the dogs, feed the cats. <laughs> interesting, interesting things that people do with this. But it is the resurrection of all dead church age believers and their removal and translation and the removal and translation of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age, immediately before the tribulation begins. Now that immediately has a little qualification. What begins the tribulation is not the rapture. That's a common misconception. I'll put a chart up here in a minute so we can go through this. But what really begins the, um, what begins the tribulation is the signing of a peace treaty between the Antichrist, who in Daniel chapter 9 is called the Prince who is to come, when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, that is what officially, according to Daniel 9 and Daniel 70 weeks, what begins that final seven-week period. So we put this timeline up on the overhead. Here's the cross, the beginning of the church age. at didn't begin really at the cross, but um, uh, 50 days later at the day of Pentecost in approximately 33 A.D. We don't know how long the church age lasts because the rapture is imminent. It could last until tomorrow the Lord could come back another 200 years. We have no idea. The rapture of the church takes place then sometime subsequent to that. I don't think it'll be long. Uh, most of the transition periods in Scripture are no more than uh, 30, 40, 50 days. For example, the transition from the uh, cross to Pentecost is only about 50 days. There is also a transition at the end of the millennium that's about 60 days, 50 or 60 days, 
And um, I just don't think it's going to last very long. It's not going to be a year or two. We don't know, but it, I think on pre- other, the precedent from other dispensational shifts, it's a relatively short time. Then there's the seven-year tribulation, which ends with the second coming of Christ to the earth at the Mount of Olives, and that then will begin the Millennial Kingdom. So the rapture ends the church age, but it is the signing of the peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel that begins the tribulation. Now that brings us to our second definition, and that is tribulation. The tribulation is a technical term that refers to a period of seven literal years which completes the age of Israel. In the Old Testament prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel was given an outline of the history of Israel from their return to the land in approximately 444 B.C. in the decree from Artaxerxes I of Persia for the Jews to return to the land from the date of that, and we can date that precisely in history, from the date of that uh, decree to return to the land until the cutting off of Messiah would be approximately, I think it's 173,880 days if you work out the math, and that takes you right up to the entry point on the uh, triumphal entry of the Lord on what we call Palm Sunday, which was really probably on either Monday or, the, or, or possibly Saturday. I think it was Monday. But that's the triumphal entry of the Lord is the, comes to the day. The day of, of that 170, I think it's 173,880 days. It's 483 prophetic years. And a prophetic year is 360 days, so when you multiply out 483 times 360, that's how you come up with the number of days. The tribulation period is the last seven years decreed during that, that time. It is postponed because of the crucif- rejection and crucifixion of the Lord. And so that is postponed in history. It's the final years. It is the time when Satan is given almost full sway on the earth to try to establish his kingdom. It is the time of his greatest desperation and greatest temper tantrum as he seeks to gain control over this kingdom that he has attempted to rule throughout all of human history. But all of his attempts result in warfare, suffering, and turmoil in human history and at the, when human, the human race is on the verge of self-destruction at the Battle of Armageddon, the Lord Jesus Christ returns bodily to the earth to save them. Now, when we look at this, we have to, to think in terms of the timing of the rapture. The timing of the rapture, and this is one of the issues of great theological debate, and there are basically three positions. There's a couple of new ones, but... Just to, I don't want to bore you with all of those details because I think it's pretty absurd, but uh, someday we'll discover the pre-wrath rapture view, but not, not tonight. We have what's called the pre-tribulation rapture. Just think in terms of pre and post. Pre is before, post is after, and mid, of course, is in the middle. Pre-trib rapture occurs at the beginning of the tribulation. Post-trib rapture is the view that puts it at the end of the tribulation and the mid-trib or, and even a partial rapture view puts it sometime during the tribulation. Let's get the definitions. Pre-tribulation rapture is the resurrection of the church immediately preceding the seven-year tribulation. The resurrection of the church 
immediately preceding the seven-year tribulation. Now, this is a technical use of the word church, which refers to every believer living and dead. The bride of Christ, it is not referring to any particular denomination or individual church. It is referring to the overall church, every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pre-trib rapture. The next position is the mid-tribulation rapture, which usually places the rapture at the midpoint or some three and a half years into the tribulation. The last three and a half years are sometimes referred to as the Great Tribulation in Scripture. So this position, uh, it's a very minor position, but they take it that the church, the church goes through the first three and a half years and is not raptured to, until halfway through. Recent years, there's been the development of something called the pre-wrath rapture, which is very similar, and also partial rapture views, which means that only those who've hit spiritual maturity are raptured, and every time a group hits spiritual maturity in the tribulation, they get raptured. I'm not going to critique all of those views. The only view that has sound biblical support, I believe, is the pre-trib rapture, that Christ comes prior to the tribulation, and part of the argument for that is the doctrine we're studying this evening, the imminency of the rapture. So the mid-trib rapture view puts the rapture at the midpoint, or three and a half years into the tribulation, and then the post-tribulation rapture, called post-trib, post-tribulation rapture is the theological position that the rapture of the church does not occur until the end of the tribulation, immediately preceding the second coming of Christ. Sort of like this. Christ is on his way down. We pop up and come down with him. That's the post-trib view. Sort of a jack-in-the-box theory of the rapture. Now, we have to understand that terminology or you won't understand the remaining points in the doctrine. That's why we had to cover that. I know that's a lot of review for some of you, but may be new for a few others. The post-trib rapture. And then the last technical term is the millennial kingdom. This is not referring to a kingdom that begins at the change of the millennium in 2000 A.D., which really doesn't occur until January 1st, 2001. When I use the word millennium, I've had to be sensitive to that because we're so flooded with millennial madness and everything's the millennium this and the millennium that. that If you talk about Christ's millennial kingdom, everybody might think that you're talking about something that just started. Now, there are some people who think that, but they used to have institutions for those things. Nevertheless, the millennial kingdom refers to the thousand-year rule of Jesus Christ as the greater son of David in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant from the throne of David in Jerusalem. This is not talking about some spiritualized throne in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. It's talking about a literal throne and a literal kingdom in literal Jerusalem. This is the millennial kingdom from the Latin word milli meaning 1,000, sometimes referred to as the messianic kingdom. Kingdom. It is a literal, it is not a figurative or spiritualized event. Now, there are views that hold the millennium to be a spiritualized kingdom, not of this earth. That's called amillennialism. There's some other views, but I don't want to get into a discourse on postmillennialism, amillennialism, or panmillennialism this evening. We'll just look at, confine our discussion to the imminency of the rapture. Point number three, Greek terminology. 
Greek terminology. The verb is engizo. Whenever you have that funny-looking double gamma there, the second and third letter in the Greek, that is always transliterated over into English as an NG, for those of you who are trying to learn how to read Greek. You have the same thing in angelos. It's alpha, gamma, gamma, but pronounced NG, angelos. Engizo means to be near, to be proximate in either space or time. It has a wide variety of meanings, and you have to look at the context, but it can mean close or near in terms of space, like this pulpit is near to me, or it can be a temporal verb, meaning that it is close in time. For example, we, the ending of this Bible class is close in time. For some of you, not close enough for others of you. It is imminent, but you don't know when. You have an idea, but it's not that close. Ingus is the adverb meaning also near or proximate. According to Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, it means to bring near. It has mostly an intransitive sense of to approach. Ingus means near in space, near in time, almost in terms of counting, we would say approximately or about, and it means similar or related. It has a wide variety of meanings, and we have to look at the context to understand just exactly what the author is intending to say. Romans 13:12, the Apostle Paul says, The night is almost gone. He's referring to the present age when Christ is not present with us. And he says the day is near. This is a reference to the day of the Lord. And he uses the word ingus, or ingizo there, the verb. Therefore, he says, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on armor of light. So there the Apostle Paul is challenging us to advance to spiritual maturity because of the imminency of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, It's the same context of exhortation and challenge. Let your gentle spirit or the gentleness, and this isn't gentleness in the sense of of some sort of um, wimpy little mamby-pamby attitude. This is the old idea. Remember that we get the word gentle, it goes back to the concept in Old English of a gentleman. And gentleman was much like the Old Testament concept of meekness, which is strength under control. It is... uh, not the idea of some sort of, of uh, wimpy milk toast. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is in Gizo, near, imminent. Because the Lord's coming could be at any moment, we need to be challenged to live in accordance with God's Word, applying doctrine and advancing spiritually. Hebrews 10.25, well-known passage that people usually pull out to tell everybody they need to be at church every Sunday morning. Of course, they forget that they need doctrine every day of the week. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, what? Drawing ingus, near, adverbial there, near. Because of the coming of the Lord is imminent, we need to be in Bible class on a day-to-day basis, taking in the Word of God, listening to tapes, always advancing, growing spiritually so that we are prepared and ready for the judgment seat of Christ. 
1 Peter 4, 7 states, The end of all things is ingus, near, imminent. Therefore, be of sound judgment, that is, sound thinking, because of doctrine resident in the soul of the believer. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit, really sober thinking, which is a thinking that is aligned with reality. It does not mean that you have not imbibed of alcoholic beverages. That is not the concept of sobriety in the Scripture. Sober refers to having clear, sound, objective thinking in the soul. Understanding what the issues are and being able to make sound decisions. It should be uh, rendered, not only we already have sound, sound judgment and objective thinking, for the purpose of prayer. So prayer is to be motivated by the fact that Jesus' return is imminent. Now the doctrine of imminency is important for a number of reasons, but first let's look at where the term rapture comes from. Point number four, rapture. Rapture derives from the Latin word rapio. Now you're always going to find somebody who doesn't have any any biblical training come along and say, why do you believe in the rapture? You can't find that word in the Bible. That's not a biblical concept. That's just some man-made doctrine. Well, now you're going to write this down in your notes and you will have something to say the next time you hear somebody say that. First of all, there are a lot of words that we use uh, to describe doctrines in the Scripture that aren't found in the Scripture. First of all, we use English words, and the Bible was written in Greek, so that means none of them were found in the original text. But it is the purpose of theology to put together the concepts of the Scripture and to coin new vocabulary to express that. That is not wrong. We do that with words such as trinity. We do it with the, with the term rapture. Trinity is not found in the Scripture. The concept is, but the word is not. It wasn't coined until the third, uh, third century A.D. by a man named Tertullian. And it was the Latin word trinitas, not the English version trinity. Rapture comes from the Latin word rapio found in the Vulgate version, which was the translation of Jerome of the Greek New Testament, And the Latin word means to snatch away, and it translates the Greek word harpazo, the verb harpazo, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O, harpazo, used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, which means to seize, to catch up, and to snatch. So harpazo is the Greek word, the Greek word translated there, that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him, in the clouds, to be caught up. That's harpazo. So, rapture comes from rapio, meaning to snatch away, and it's a legitimate word. It's legitimate to take a Latin word to describe a Greek concept, and now you know where the term rapture comes from. Rapture means to caught up. Sometimes it has an emotional connotation because you see something and you are enraptured. You're carried away emotionally. It's so beautiful. But the term doesn't necessarily have an emotional connotation. It simply means to be taken from one place to another, to be seized in an emotional state, any number of meanings. But here it means to be taken from one place and moved to another, used in 1 Thess 4.17. Point five, this is the doctrine of imminency is significant for demonstrating the pre-tribulation rapture. It is important to understand this. Dr. Ryrie makes a very important statement in his book, uh, What the Bible Teaches About the Rapture. 
He says, if, if the pre-tribulation rapture is correct, then the rapture could take place at any time and is clearly imminent. So if the rapture is correct, what he is saying is that it must be that it could take place at any time with nothing preceding it. And that would mean that it is imminent. If, however, the opposing position, either mid-trib or post-trib, if, however, the church will live through the tribulation and be raptured at the end, then only in the last part of the tribulation could anyone truly say that the Lord's coming is imminent. The point he is making is that in Matthew 24, the Lord clearly laid out a number of signs to look for preceding the second coming. Now, if those signs must take place before the rapture, then we can't say it's imminent until we see those signs taking place. And so the fact that the Scriptures teach that it could happen at any moment and that nothing need precede it is an indication that the rapture must come before those end-time signs and prophecies begin to be fulfilled. Now, what are some of the central passages? I want to look at three central passages on eminency. The first comes from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, in the midst of the upper room discourse as we've been studying in John on Sunday mornings. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says to his disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so... I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now let's make a couple of points of observation here. First of all, just as Christ literally went to heaven just after this event, just as he literally ascended to heaven, he will literally return to take his disciples to the Father's house. He says, if I go. How did he go? He went literally, physically, bodily. He ascended to heaven. Then he says, if I go, I will come again. That must be in the same sense.
physically. His return must be literal and physical and not spiritual. See, this is what the post-tribbers and the ah-tribbers and some of the new preterists and other positions are saying is that Jesus came, came back, but it was, it was spiritual. The new preterist position, Tommy introduced us to that last summer, preterist meaning that it all, all prophecy was fulfilled in the past. It's 70 A.D. There are even those who are saying that Christ returned in 70 A.D. spiritually to the church. We'll see how that impacts this doctrine in a minute. But that, of course, is absurd. Jesus said, if I go, he meant literally and physically, then he would return literally and physically. The present tense, he says, it's translated a future tense there, I will come again, but in the Greek, it is a present tense. Many times the present tense is used with a futuristic sense. It's called the futuristic present because an event is so certain to take place in the future that it is spoken of as a present reality because of its certainty. So Jesus uses an emphatic futuristic present to describe his future coming there. Second, we need to see what exactly takes place in these verses. First of all, It explains that Christ will return to an earthly scene. We have Christ coming from heaven to an earthly scene to take His disciples. It says, I will receive you to Myself. To take His disciples to heaven. I will receive you to Myself that where I am heaven, you may be also. So He's returning to an earthly scene to take His disciples to heaven. Contrast that with what happens at the second coming when Christ is coming to the earth to establish a kingdom on the earth. So there's clearly a difference between John 14:3, which views taking the disciples to heaven, and Revelation 19, which sees Jesus coming all the way to the earth and staying on the earth and the church age believers ruling and reigning with Him. So that is clearly a distinction. Secondly, this verse contrasts with the disciples' expectation of an earthly kingdom. We saw that in our study of John 13, that Jesus said, I'm about to leave, and they got all upset. They didn't know what to do. That didn't fit their millennial expectations because they thought the Messiah would come and establish an earthly kingdom. Even in Acts chapter 1, they're still confused. They say, Lord, when are you going to establish the kingdom? In fact, if we look at Acts 1 turn over that you don't have to take the time but I want to pull one verse out of there in Acts chapter 1 in Acts chapter 1 uh, the um, angels appear in verse 11 and they say men of Galilee why do you stand looking into the sky into the sky This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will what? Come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. In other words, if it's literal up, it's a literal return. Literal ascension is a literal uh, descent. So Jesus established that fact and and the disciples are still expecting the restoration of the kingdom. In verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And the Lord says it's uh, only the Father knows the times and the seasons. So they have uh, a 
what Jesus tells them in John 14 is in contrast to their expectation of an earthly kingdom. They expect to stay on the earth and He says, no, I'm going to take you to heaven with Me. The third thing we observe here in terms of what exactly transpires is that there is a different hope. Their hope is earthly, but Christ is giving them a heavenly anticipation, a heavenly hope that their destiny is heaven, not on the earth. So, in terms of this verse, we saw that that in terms of what Jesus said, He would go the same way He comes back. It would be literal and physical. Secondly, we looked at the dynamics of what would transpire there in terms of an earthly versus a heavenly destiny. Third, I must say that this is not a metaphor for death. There are some that want to say that, that when Jesus says, um, if I go and prepare, for, for you, uh, prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's really talking about death. But that's not what is in the context where Jesus is talking about receiving the disciples to Himself eschatologically. This is not a metaphor for death. Neither does the term in my Father's house refer to Christ's body. Those are just a couple of ways that people try to get around the fact that the the explanation of these events here differs with the second coming. And then we see that the object the object here for the church age believer is to be with Christ forever. It is not an earthly destiny in an earthly Jerusalem. That would relate to Israel's destiny under the Abrahamic covenant. And then there is no prerequisite given here for fulfillment. Jesus does not say that certain things have to transpire before He will return. He says, I will go and I will come again There is no sense that anything must take place prior to His return. No signs, no events, no prophecies, no fulfillments. Nothing is necessary for the rapture to take place except the plan of God. Now, that was all under point 6, the first central passage, John 14, 1 through 3. Now, point number 7, I want to bring in the idea of preterism, eminency and preterism. In the debate over the pre-trib rapture, pre-tribulationists have always emphasized imminency and the post-tribbers have always said, well, it's not imminent because Christ, all these signs in the tribulation have to come first. So now we get this new position that's really an old position that's being resurrected called preterism. In preterism, the view is that these prophecies all took place in the past and they were all fulfilled at 70 A.D. So Christ even returned spiritually at 70 A.D. So now we can say if all prophecy was fulfilled, then we really don't know when the end of the age will be. So it's imminent, isn't it? They're twisting it. They're twisting the doctrine by claiming that all the prophecies were fulfilled at 70 A.D. So now this second coming, this next coming, is, is imminent. That is not what we mean by the doctrine of imminency. 1 Thessalonians 4 makes it clear. Turn there with me, please, and we'll just skim over a few passages in 1 Thess 4 and 5. The purpose of 1 Thess 4 and 5 is to encourage believers with the doctrine of the rapture in relationship to the death of their loved ones. What's happening here is that Paul had come to Thessalonica and taught the rapture, and then he left. People thought that his coming was imminent. And then some of them died. Their loved ones died and they didn't know what happened. They expected Christ to come back before they would die. That's how strongly 
Paul taught the doctrine of imminency. And in verse 18, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, he says, Therefore comfort one another with these, these words. Now, if you go back to verse 10, he says, he shows the motivation. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Why? Because the Lord is going to come back at any moment. So he uses imminency to challenge believers to grow to spiritual maturity. This is also seen in 1 Corinthians 1.7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 Thess 5.6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Once again, that does not mean the absence of alcoholic beverages. It means be uh, knowledgeable of history on the basis of doctrine, be alert, be of sound mind, and be prepared because the Lord can come back at any time. And also, Titus 2.13, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the church will see His glory when He returns in the clouds to take us to heaven to be with Him. Now, this is clearly stated in verses 15 through 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, that is, there are those who have already fallen asleep in Jesus, verse 14, that's a euphemism for uh, believers who have died in Christ. Now, I know a few believers who I think are dead in Christ, but that's not what this means. These are those who have physically died during the church age, and they are just spoken of as falling asleep. This is not soul sleep. Scripture clearly teaches we are absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. We don't go into some kind of holding pattern. Personally, Personally, I think heaven exists at another temporal dimension. God created time, so He is above time. It's sort of like if you've ever flown into an airport and you've come in over a train. If you were in a car at a crossing by that train, you would be watching that train go by one after the other in terms of succession. But if you're coming in from, from 10,000 feet on an airplane and you look down and you see that 100-car train, you can see the beginning, the end, and everything in between. And that's sort of how God looks at human history. I think God and heaven are atemporal, and that when, when those who died, like the Apostle Paul, arrive in heaven, we will be a millisecond behind them because heaven is not temporal. So that all of this takes place in a blink of an eye. Remember the passage that says, With God a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. We count the days but they are as nothing in heaven. So I don't think we're, you're going to get to heaven and be sitting around for thousands of years waiting for the next event. I think it will just go by in the blink of an eye, but that's just my personal opinion. I can't prove that from Scripture. Now those, Paul says, For this we say to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Notice it's in the air, it's not on the ground, it's not at the, at the Mount of Olives. We were alive and remain. We're going to be caught up instantaneously, just a millisecond after the dead in Christ go up. 
We will be caught up together with them as they're ascending instantaneously in the twinkling of an eye. We'll go up with them and in the process we will have our bodies converted from mortality to immortality. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And for a final verse, I want to look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. There we read, And everyone who has this hope, that is, this confident expectation of the rapture, everyone who focuses on that personal sense of their eternal destiny, letting that motivate them on a day-to-day basis in time, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself. This is part of sanctification doctrine. The Greek word here is hagnizo, and hagnizo has the same concept of katharizo. It's a synonym. And it has to do with that process of spiritual cleansing and uh, sanctification in the spiritual life. This is why prophecy is important. Sometimes people think, well, what, what benefit is prophecy to my life? Now, I need to learn how to handle problems. I need to how to face life today. Uh, prophecy, well, that's all in the future, and there's a lot of details there, but that's not going to happen in my life. Well, remember, one-fourth of Scripture was prophetic when it was given, and one out of five verses in the New Testament, according to one study, is unfulfilled prophecy. And that indicates that if you want to do away with the study of eschatology and just focus on spiritual life things, then you're cutting out 20% of the Bible. And whatever God has revealed is significant and important for us to understand. And here we have a passage that says that eschatology is even related to our spiritual life because it is that which is to motivate and drive us to greater obedience and consistency. Now let's go back to our passage and wrap up in James chapter 5 verse 8. You two be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Why are they to be patient? Because the Lord could come at any moment and you need to be ready. The judgment seat of Christ is right around the corner. If the doctrine of the return of Christ is imminent, so is the, so is the judgment seat of Christ. If the Lord's rapture, if the rapture can occur at any moment, so can the judgment seat of Christ. It's two moments later. So we need to be ready for that evaluation judgment. And this is what he says in verse 9, Therefore, uh, negative admonition, do not complain, brethren, against one another. This is their sins of the tongue, their, their bitter jealousy, their anger towards one another, their divisiveness. James brings them to task here. He says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. See, what's the theme? The theme is, get ready, the judgment seat of Christ is around the corner. Do not complain that you yourselves may not be judged. Not that their sins are going to be brought up at the judgment seat of Christ, but that if they're in carnality, they are not producing divine good, and they're at risk of ending up at the judgment seat of Christ with no gold, silver, and precious stones, just wood, hay, and straw. So the command here is to uh, straighten out their life, to be patient, to advance to spiritual maturity, because judgment day is coming. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. It is around the corner. And then in verse 10, he goes to the Old Testament and begins to shift from the overarching concept of patience to endurance. And we'll come back and look at that next time in verses 10 through 12 to set us up for the problem passage of the 
sick and the anointing and the prayer in verse 14. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your grace in giving us your word for the motivation of the soon coming of our Lord, that at any moment he could be here. And just around that corner is our evaluation judgment. So, Father, may we be mindful of that and live each day in light of our future and what that holds. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.